Our sermon this morning is from Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. Turn there in your Bibles if you, if you have them. Uh, it's the parable of the persistent widow, uh, or the parable of the unjust judge, depending on how you've heard it referenced or what your Bible you know, might refer to it as in the, in the headings. Um, a lot of Jesus' parables are, uh, you know, it's not that they're ambiguous, it's just that they, you know, take some work. They take some doing to, to unearth uh, what they mean, to figure out what the application is, the spiritual principle. Uh, you have to study it, you have to compare it to parallel passages, things like that. Uh, here in Luke 18, Jesus just comes right out of the gate, right at the beginning, and tells us what the point of the parable is, why, you know, uh, why he's telling it. We'll get to it in just a minute, but the, the point of the parable is that we will pray, that, that God's people will be faithful and persistent and, and kind of persevere uh, in trusting God and in praying to God and trusting that God will answer the prayers of, of his people. That's, what, that's why Jesus tells this parable. And so that's what this sermon is about. It's about uh, prayer and persevering and, and uh, not losing heart as Christians, but, but persevering and trusting God and, and praying to him. So that's what we're going to spend the next few minutes considering. I'm going to read through Luke 18, verses 1 through 8, and then we'll, then we'll get right to work. It says, And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. And for a while, he refused. But afterward, he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, God will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we uh, pray, we ask that you would come here and meet with us this morning. We ask that you would work through the public reading of Scripture, help us to hear your word, help us to meditate on it, help us to be changed by it, help us to be sanctified by it. We pray, Lord Jesus, that your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts and conform us to the likeness of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Okay, he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. So that's the, that's the heart behind the parable, that's the point of the parable, that's the main theme that Jesus is trying to get across. And what we're going to see as we work through it is that this kind of main theme, this kind of application, this, this uh, imperative exhortation that Jesus is giving us to, to pray and to be persistent and to not lose heart, it's informed by... 
uh, you know, it's informed by theology. It's informed by spiritual truths about God. The, the imperative is driven by the indicative. Here's what's true about God, and here's how I want you to respond in, in light of it. So the imperative is that, that Jesus wants us to pray and not lose heart, but the indicative, the, the context that he sets it in is theology. It's, it's high, grand, um, you know, transcendent truths about who God is and what God is doing and the, the character and the heart of, of God. And so he uses this story to illustrate the character of God and the heart of God. In a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. This is a, a bad judge. He's a wicked judge. He doesn't fear, uh, you know, the, the great commandment that Jesus gives in Matthew 22, right? The, the, the most important commandment is to love the Lord your God with your heart and your soul and your mind. And the second commandment is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, right? Jesus articulates over and over the most important uh, commands uh, are to love God and to love uh, your neighbor, to love people, right? To, to, to you know, honor God to fear God, and to respect your fellow man. And this judge does neither of them. He doesn't care about God. He doesn't have any reverence toward God. He, he, he sits in his throne, kind of exercising his sovereign judgment over his courtroom. He doesn't answer to anyone. He doesn't have any reverence to God. He doesn't have any obligation to follow God or obey God. He just does as he sees fit. And he doesn't love people. He doesn't care about people. He doesn't respect people. He's not, he doesn't see it as his responsibility to, to look out for uh, the people that come into his... He's the exact opposite of what you would want a judge to do. You would want a judge to see himself not as a sovereign authority in and of himself, but as an under-shepherd, someone who, someone who has authority and has you know, responsibility in his courtroom, but also uh, is, is under the authority of someone above him who tells him what to do directives, and you also want him to respect people and to, to care about people and to, to you know, not be partial to, to people that maybe are wealthy or that he wants owing him favors or things like that. This is a bad judge. This is a, you know, he, he uh, the, the very person that the justice system counts on to make sure that justice is done, to make sure that, that justice and righteousness are done. Right, this guy's supposed to be the final line of defense against injustice, and he is the one perpetuating injustice. He's a bad judge. He's a wicked judge. And what we're going to see is uh, this character development. Like Jesus is kind of making these strong, intense, you know, like very, like it's not like middle of the road kind of milk toast characters. These are very strong. The, the characters, uh, you know, traits and characteristics are very uh, strong. So this judge is wicked and bad. Um, and there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him saying, give me justice against my adversary. So just like this judge was really bad, he was as bad of a person as you could imagine, this widow is as vulnerable of a person as you could imagine. She's, she's poor, and she is needy, and she's oppressed. Widows, like even if, you know, even apart from having some sort of adverse, some sort of predatory you know, adversary that's trying to take advantage of you. Even apart from that, widows were just in a, a very a, a pre- precarious, vulnerable uh, predicament, right? All, all the entire uh, society and, and the exchange of goods and wealth and, and social stability revolved around males, right? Women were totally dependent on their, whole, on their husbands. 
Uh, they needed them for provision. They needed them uh, for, for, you know, women had little earning power in and of themselves. They had little ability to protect their home and their family in and of themselves. The goal, the goal was that, you know, I mean, the reality was that you'd be dependent on your father. If you're, if you're a young girl in this, in this uh, society, you'd be dependent on your father. The goal was that you would find a husband who could take care of you and protect you and provide for you before your dad kind of aged out of, of being able to do those things. And then the second goal was that, you know, your husband would outlive you or that, uh, you, or that your husband would, reach, would live long enough for your son or sons to reach adulthood and then they could take care of you and they could kind of protect you and provide for you. This one has none of that. None of those kind of intergenerational safety nets are there. She's all alone, no husband, no father, no son. And she is kind of summoning the, the, the fortitude, the courage to, to go to this judge all by herself Usually you'd send a male uh, to kind of go and, and advocate for you. She's going to the judge all by herself. She has some sort of bully, some sort of adversary that is trying to take advantage of her, right? Maybe, um, I don't know, a, a loan shark who has, you know, given her, uh, you know, a, a loan at a predatory interest rate and is trying to take everything she has or, you know, or... Um, a slumlord who, like, you know, is, is overcharging her for rent and letting her home fall into disrepair with conditions that are, are dangerous. You know, there's some sort, of, some sort of predatory, you know, oppression that's going on here. Um, and, and this vulnerable, defenseless widow is coming to this judge and asks, and she's asking him, give me justice against my adversary, right? Not, uh, not rule in my favor, not uh, give me some sort of, uh, you know, partiality, some sort of sweetheart deal. I want you to, you know, regardless of what's just or unjust, I want you to rule in my favor. She just says, I just want you to, to, do, to, to do what's just and what's right. If it's right to rule in his favor, do that. If it's right to rule in my favor, the bottom line is, as far as I can tell, from my perspective, I am experiencing injustice and oppression, and I want you to do what is right and what is just. And the wicked judge, the unjust judge, uh, for, a while, for a while, he refuses, right? He, he has no interest in advocating for this woman. He doesn't care about her, right? Please tell this guy to stop, you know, taking advantage of me or intimidating me. Uh, the ju- you know, and maybe the, judge has, maybe the judge is on the payroll, right? Maybe, maybe like that guy, that, that predatory, you know, guy has, is, is, you know, paying you know, is, is giving a kickback to the judge and saying, I want you to don't rule in her favor so that I can keep extorting her so that, you know, you can keep getting your 10 or 20% or whatever it is, right? Maybe he's corrupt and he is, uh, you know, uh, benefiting from this situation. Or maybe he's just, um, he just doesn't care, right? Maybe he's, maybe he, he has this courtroom and, and when people come in that he wants to listen to and he cares about because he wants them owing him favors or he wants them to, you know, he, he wants to, to, you know, there's something that he can get from them. They're higher on the food chain than he is. He listens intently and he rules in their favor. But when someone lower than him on the social ladder uh, comes in, he just doesn't have time. He can't be bothered. He doesn't care about their situation and he doesn't care about uh, having, having justice for them. This is you know, Isaiah chapter 3 talks about, uh, you know, crushing and, and grinding the faces of the poor that Isaiah speaks prophetically about. And this is what this judge is doing. This is what this, this adversary and this judge together are collectively doing. Taking advantage of a poor, vulnerable widow. 
So day after day, the woman comes in, day after day, same thing, please hear my case, please advocate for me, please give me justice against my adversary. And day after day, he refuses, no, I don't want to hear it, I've got better things to do, I've got more important things to do. But eventually, eventually he says to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, Yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. So he acknowledges out loud to to himself, right? I don't care about God. I don't care about his law. I don't care about who he is. I don't care about obeying him. I don't care about doing his will. I don't care about people. I don't care about this widow's well-being. I don't care if she's treated justly or not. I don't care if she dies for all I care. I don't care about any, I only care about myself. I only care about acting ways that will benefit me personally. But, but the situation is starting to affect me personally. It's becoming annoying. Right? She, she's, in, she's in my face and she's bothering me. Right? She has no money, no power, no influence. It does me no good to have her owing me a favor. She has no pull or no sway with anyone that I want owing me a favor, but fine. I'm going to, I'm going to grant her justice. I'm going to meet her needs uh, anyway because, because it's starting to get annoying. Every day she's in here. And every day the bailiff hands me my docket, and every day her name is on it, and every day she's the first one to get there in the morning, the last one to leave in the evening, and it's just becoming a, a nuisance. I'm, I'm going to grant her justice so that uh, I will not be beat down by her continual coming. This is the best rendering of that verb that I could find in any translation, beat down. It literally means physically beat. The word, the word beat down here is um, hypopiazo which comes from two Greek words, under or underneath, and eyes or, or vision. And what it means is to be, to be physically accosted, beaten until your eyes are, until you get, it's to give, a black, to give someone a black eye, right? He's saying, like, this, like I, am, like, I am at risk of getting a metaphorical, like, getting metaphorically punched in the face by this widow over and over, overcome, worn out, beaten until my face is black and blue. From the, that's how persistent that she is. That's how dedicated that she is. That's how much she refuses to stop. She can't take a hint. And it is exhausting. It is, it is wearing me out. It is beating me down. That's how, how you know, intense this woman's persistence is in asking for, uh, for justice. So at this point, maybe there's paperwork involved. Maybe I'm going to make enemies of people that I would rather have be my friends. Maybe some income, you know, revenue stream from some loan shark is going to get turned off. Whatever the cost is, it's now more costly for me to deny her justice than it is for me to give her justice because she is so adamant and so persistent and, frankly, so um, annoying. So he does. He gives her justice cease and desist order, you know, restitution must be paid, here's the amount, whatever, leave this widow alone, let her live her life, stop trying to squeeze every last penny out of of her. And he does it. He gives her the justice that she wants so that he won't be beat down by her continual coming. That's the story of the persistent widow and the unjust judge. Wicked guy, tasked with upholding the law, doesn't do it, Poor widow comes before him day after day. Eventually, because of her persistence, he relents and gives her what she is asking for. And then here in verses 6 and following is how Jesus interprets this passage. How he interprets this, this illustration. 
And the Lord says, hear what the unrighteous judge says. Listen to what he said. Look at the character of the unrighteous judge and and take it in and absorb it for, for a minute. Look how he acts. This is a wicked man who is willing to let a poor, defenseless, helpless woman be taken advantage of right in front of him. He was in a position to help. He didn't care. He abandoned her. He let her suffer. This is a, a wicked man. And even he, even this wicked man would eventually listen to this woman, hear her, come to her aid, leverage his power, leverage his authority to alleviate her suffering and ensure that justice is done. Even this wicked, unjust judge would do that for this woman if given enough time. Enough time, if she's persistent enough, if she keeps coming, even this guy will give justice for her. And then verse 7, and will not God, will not God give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? This is an argument from lesser to greater, right? If, if even this wicked judge is going to grant the request of this poor woman, how much more will your heavenly father answer the prayers of, it, like, of his people? The judge is wicked, but God is not wicked. God is holy and righteous and good and, and pure. The judge does not love his neighbor, but God cares about his people. He loves them, and he, he, he is compassionate toward them. So if this unjust judge who doesn't love God, doesn't care about people, will meet the request of his people, how much more will your heavenly father, will God not give justice? And will, not, will, God not give, will not God give justice to his elect? Right? So, so Jesus intentionally uses this word uh, elect, referring to the people that God has elected to, to save. Right? The, the, the reality about your salvation, my salvation, the salvation of any person who comes to Christ, the Bible is, is very clear about our salvation. Right? It's very clear that, that God is the one who saves sinners. God is the one who initiated our salvation. God is the one who executed and accomplished our salvation. God is the one who applies our salvation and, and keeps us in his sovereign hand. You owe, you owe your salvation to God, not to yourself, not to anyone else. It's, it's, it's a natural tendency, just kind of given the way that we live our lives and the way that our, our conscience and our will seem to work uh, it's very easy to look at our, our Christianity and look at our salvation, look at our relationship with Jesus and think, I did that, right? I heard the gospel. I chose to believe the gospel, right? Right now, I'm, I'm here at church this morning because I chose to, to get up and drive to church. I could have stayed in bed, could have, you know, made pancakes and watched NFL pregame coverage. I, I'm here right now because I chose to be here. I made a decision, and so it's, it's uh, like I am the one who who did it. And all of that's true in one sense. It's, it's true that you're here because he chose to be here. It's true that you uh, love Jesus because you chose to believe in him and chose to, to follow him. To become a Christian, you do have to choose to believe the gospel. To remain a Christian, you do have to choose to continue to follow Jesus and walk in obedience. But if that's all, if that's like the, the extent of how you understand your salvation, then you, you're, it's a little bit nearsighted. It's a little bit kind of missing the forest for the, the trees. Because this, the, the, the transcendent truth that kind of uh, exists above it is that uh, prior to choosing to believe the gospel, prior to choosing to follow Jesus, God chose you. God elected you. Right? 
in, in, our, in our natural state, prior to God's sovereign grace intervening in our lives, in our hearts, in our natural state, we kind of came into this world and, and, and we were uh, you know, marked by rebellion against God and rejection of God. We wanted to, to go our own way. We wanted to be our own authority. We don't want to submit to God. We don't want to submit to our parents. We don't want to submit to authority. We don't want to submit to anyone or anything. I, I want autonomy. I want to pursue my own interests. I want, I want to do what I want to do, right? And so we're, we're, as human beings, we're kind of born and we're immersed into this, this uh, system of rebellion against God and, and aversion to his authority and selfism, this kind of, uh, you know, only wanting to, to, you know, follow my own will and my own way that we can't even choose God. We can't even choose to follow God even if we wanted to, right? Following God involves self-denial, right? It involves doing things that you don't want to do. It involves not doing or giving up doing the things that you want to do. It, it, it involves an admission of guilt, right? You have to publicly acknowledge that I am not good enough. I need someone that's not me to save me. I, I need help from someone else, right? Following God, it, it means kind of going against the grain, the exact 180 degrees, the opposite direction of every natural tendency and instinct that we have. And like, uh, we are born kind of wanting to be our own authority, be our own, you know, sovereign king on the throne of our lives. And we're born wanting to convince ourselves and convince everyone around us that we're good enough. And everything I have, I earned it. No one, you know, I, I am good enough. I don't need a savior because I am good enough. Because of our nature being what it is, it's impossible for a fallen human being to believe the gospel or follow God in and of themselves. You, you have freedom. We have freedom. We have a certain degree of autonomy. Um, you know, in the same way that, that a fish has freedom to swim wherever it wants to go. Right? Given the confines of what it is and its nature and, and you know, what, what its capacity is, a fish has freedom to swim wherever it wants. But it can't get up and walk on land and it can't speak English and it can't fly through the air. Right? It, it has total autonomy to do anything it wants within the confines of its nature and how it was made. Sinful human beings who don't have the re, a regenerate heart who, who God's grace has not kind of intervened in their life, have total freedom and total autonomy to rebel against God however they see fit, right? Total freedom to reject God however they see fit, but they can't step outside of their nature. They can't step outside of their particular capacity unless God supernaturally gives them grace, gives them a newfound capacity to hear the gospel and love it and believe it, a newfound capacity to repent of their sin and to trust in, in Jesus. And God does that through election. God, does, God gives his people a newfound, formerly non-existent capacity to hear the gospel, respond to it, love Jesus, walk with him, through election, right? God takes people that were running away from him 
and, and never wanted to do anything except run away from him, and he elects them, and he chooses them, and he says, you are going to be my people. I'm going to come to you. I'm going to die for you. I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to spill my blood on your behalf so that you can be forgiven. I'm going to send my Holy Spirit. I'm going to take up residence in your hearts so that you can believe the gospel and live in relationship with me. I'm going to, I'm going to keep you so that you can persevere and, until you come to be with me in, in glory. This is the exact picture that we see in Romans chapter 8, verses 29 to 30. Paul says, For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those who God predestined, he also called. And those who God called, he also justified. And those who God justified, he also glorified. There's like a straight line of causation, a straight line of like, you know, if A equals B, then B equals C, and C equals C, like you can't, you know, it's impossible to have A be true of you and not also have B and C and D, right? This, these dominoes inevitably fall that God, God predestined, right? God, God foreknows, he predestines, he calls, he justifies, he, he glorifies, right? The doctrine of election says that God in eternity past has determined that he is going to save his people and, and we cannot thwart his sovereign purposes. It's the doctrine of of election. But this parable is not talking specifically about the doctrine of election. It's not talking specifically about uh, our eternal uh, destination, right? This parable is talking about uh, the power of, of prayer. It's, it's not, I mean, it, it has implications about our uh, eternal security, but it's talking about God giving justice to his, his elect, God listening to the prayers of his people and responding to them, right? It says, will he delay long over them? The, the rhetorical question, the answer to which is no. God will not delay over his people. I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. So this parable is talking about God answering prayers. So the implication is, you know, you... You look, at the, you look at the persistent widow and the unjust judge, and, and God's justice for her is slow because he is reluctant. He doesn't care. He doesn't want to do it. He only eventually does it out of necessity and out of self-interest so that he won't continue to be inconvenienced by her. And Jesus is saying, God doesn't answer the prayers of his people like that. God is better than this unjust judge because unlike this unjust judge who doesn't care, he's indifferent and he's malo- God cares for his people. He genuinely delights in hearing the prayers of his people. God, for some strange reason, God, despite being sovereign and transcendent and existing you know, far above the universe, far above our existence, despite being totally self-sufficient and not needing anything from you and not having any reason to care at all what you say to him, God loves when you talk to him. He loves hearing from his people. He delights hearing their prayers and he genuinely delights in answering the prayers of his people. God loves protecting his people. He loves providing for his people. The very thing that this unjust judge had to be convinced and, and, and you know, almost had to have his hand forced to do, God loves to do. He's delighting to do. He's longing to do for his people. God is not an unjust judge who needs to be convinced or persuaded. God is a perfect, good, righteous, benevolent judge. 
And, and more than that, God is not just a, a good, benevolent judge. God is a loving, compassionate, gracious Father. Right? He's not interacting with you like a judge would interact with a, a, a defendant or, or a plaintiff in his courtroom. He's interacting with you like a child, like a child that a loving father has raised from infancy or that he has adopted. This parable is an illustration from, from lesser to greater. If this judge, if even this judge would eventually give justice to this woman that he doesn't care about, how much more will your heavenly father give justice to you who he does care about? So the application then is to, is to pray. It's to pray boldly. It's to pray, right, uh, come before your heavenly Father. Pray for the things that you need. Pray for the things that you desire. Pray for your friends. Pray for your, salva- pray for your friends. Pray for your family. Pray that they would come to know Jesus. Pray for your local church. Pray for its health and for its vitality. Pray boldly to your Father in heaven because God loves to hear from you and he loves to answer your prayers. Which raises the question, why does my reality often not comport with what what I'm reading should be the case, right? If I'm reading that God loves to give justice to his people, that he will not delay long over them, that he will give justice to them, right? How, how am I supposed to believe, how am I supposed to hold on to that theological truth and believe it and trust in it if my life seems to, uh, you know, feel just the, the opposite? What do I do as a Christian if I'm having trouble believing that God wants to answer my prayers? If I have trouble believing that God is even able to answer my prayers? Because that, in in our experience, that does tend to happen, right? If you're praying for a friend or family member to have their health restored and their health continues to deteriorate or eventually they die, right? Or you're struggling with chronic pain and you pray for God to take it away. You pray for mercy. You pray for relief and it never goes away. You know, couples experiencing infertility, praying for God to give them the gift of children, and he never does, right? Praying for the safety uh, of your child, and they get hit by, hit by a drunk driver, right? Praying for your family, praying that, that you could provide for your family, right? Praying that God would allow you to provide for your family. You get laid off, you lose your job, like, right? When, when things happen, Right, the instinctive, at least in my case, and I imagine the instinctive response of the human heart in any case, is that when circumstances come into our lives that seem to paint a different picture than Luke 18 is, we immediately, we instantly just assume that it's not true. God, God doesn't answer prayers. God doesn't care about me. God is not listening. God is indifferent. God is preoccupied with something else. God is preoccupied with someone else that he loves more than me. God is malevolent. God is not good. God does not want to bless me. God does not want to take care of me. God is impotent. God is not able to take care of me. He wishes he could, but he's weak, and he's not sovereign, and he can't help me even if he wanted to, right? If you have trouble believing that God is sovereign and able to answer your prayers, or trouble believing that God is good and that he is willing to answer your prayers, if you have trouble believing that this passage is true, that this parable is true, God has not left you without 
resources. He has not left you without a perspective that he intends to confront that doubt and to confront that, uh, those thoughts that are lurking in your soul. God has not left you without evidence to, to you know, show that what we read in Luke 18 is true. The passage that I just read from Romans chapter 8, right? That those who God foreknows, uh, he also calls. Those he calls, he justifies. Those he justifies, he, he glorifies. How God kind of keeps his people from eternity past through time and space into eternity future. The very next verse, immediately after that, Paul gives some application to show how this doctrine of election is intended to inform how we trust God with our circumstances here in this life. Immediately on the heels of, of verse 30, in verse 31 we read, What then shall we say about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Romans 8.32 says, If God did not spare his own son, but graciously gave him up for us all, Will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If you read Luke 18, that kind of paints this rosy picture that God loves you, God wants to provide for you, God wants to take care of you, and you have difficulty believing it, where do you look for help? Where do you look for assurance? Paul says you look to the cross of Christ. God has, already, God has already given you everything that you need to see or hear or know in order to prove that he can and will answer your prayers, that he can and will give you everything that you need. Right? Romans 8, 28 to 32 is another argument from, I guess this one's an argument from greater to lesser. Right? Luke 18 is an argument from lesser to greater. If even this judge will give compassion to this woman, then certainly your heavenly Father will give it to you. But Romans 8 is an argument from from greater to lesser. If God can be trusted with big things, like your eternal salvation, the very fate of your soul that will go on forever and ever, if God can be trusted with big things like that, then certainly God can be trusted with smaller things, like your life and your health and your finances, and your, your family, right? If God can be trusted with the next trillion, trillion years of your life, then God can be trusted with the next handful of decades of your life. God has proven that he, is, that he can be trusted because God has taken what was an impossible situation. Your sin, your rebellion, your guilt. God has taken an impossible situation and he has fixed it. He has redeemed it. Jesus has come. Jesus has taken your sin upon himself. Jesus has borne the full weight of the punishment for your sins. Jesus has absorbed the wrath that was meant for you into his very self. Jesus took all of the suffering that you would have experienced for all of eternity, and Jesus exhausted it on the cross in a matter of hours. At the cross, at the atonement, God has proven beyond the shadow of a doubt that he loves you more than you can ever know, more than you can ever imagine. He's proven that he will stop at nothing to take care of you, and he has proven that he will give you everything that you need. 
God has proven that he is sovereign. He's proven that he's able to take care of you. He's proven that he's good. He's proven that he is willing to take care of you. And so Paul is saying, let that reality, let that theological truth that we know to be true inform how you understand who God is and how you pray to God. If Jesus is willing to die on a Roman cross to save you from your sin, if God the Father is willing to let his own son die right in front of him in order to save you from your sin, if God did not spare his own son but graciously gave him up for you, then will he not also, along with him, graciously give you all things? God loves you. God loves to to hear your prayers. God loves to answer your prayers. It gives him joy. If you find yourself doubting that, then look no further than the person and work of Christ. Look no further than who Jesus is and what he has done for you, and then be like this widow. Pray and persevere in prayer, and do not lose heart. That's how this passage ends. Nevertheless, When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? In other words, now that you have, now that you have this theological doctrine, now that you kind of know the bedrock of theological truths about God and who he is, now that you know that God is a gracious Father who loves his children and who will never let them go, and who loves to listen to and answer prayers, more so even than this unjust judge who himself did. Now that you know all of that, how will you respond? When I return, what am I going to find? Will I find my people being faithful to me, and being persistent and persevering in prayer, or will I find them being faithless? Will you lean in and cry out to God, and and trust him to answer your prayers, or will you lean on your own wisdom, lean on your own understanding, operate as if you are the only person who can be trusted, operate as if you are the only person who can take care of yourself, right? Will Jesus return and find you with with a humble heart posture, bowing before his authority, acknowledging his supremacy, allowing him to answer your prayers on his terms instead of demanding that he answer your prayers on your terms. Right? We, we pray to God. God answers prayers. Sometimes his answer is yes. Sometimes his answer is no. Sometimes his answer is uh, later, not yet. Right? But God answers the prayers of his people And Jesus is saying, will I find faith with my people? Will I find a people who faithfully submit to my authority to answer their prayers on my terms? Or will I find faithlessness as they trust in themselves? They don't pray because they're too busy. They don't pray because prayer feels like a waste of time. They don't pray because they feel like God doesn't answer their prayers to their satisfaction. Will God find you, will Jesus find you being faithful and praying like this widow or being faithless and abdicating the spiritual discipline of prayer? Um, one of the best resources I found on prayer is called a, it's called a Call to Prayer. The book is called A Call to Prayer by J.C. Ryle. It's actually a booklet. It's like stapled together. You can Google it, read it online for free. You can buy it on Amazon for $2, a call to prayer. The entire book answers the question. Like the question in the preface says, do you pray? 
do you pray? And then there's, you know, eight chapters that are a page or two each uh, that each kind of break down this, this, you know, gives his reasons why, right? So the the chapters are as follows. Uh, uh, I ask whether you pray because prayer is absolutely necessary to a person's salvation, right? J.C. Ryle says, prayer indicates a posture of humility and trust uh, and, and looking to someone outside of yourself, all of those are what it means to become. I, I ask whether you pray because it's necessary for salvation. I ask whether you pray because a habit of prayer is one of the surest marks of a true Christian. Right? Christians pray, non-Christians don't pray. So I'm asking you if you pray because that is one of the surest marks to determine whether you're a Christian or not. I ask whether you pray because there is no duty in religion so neglected as private prayer. He points out that of all the spiritual disciplines that we're called to do or that that God has given us to help make our way through the Christian life, prayer is one of the most neglected that there is. Chapter 4, I ask whether you pray because prayer is a Christian's source of great encouragement. Does prayer feel like an obligation? prayer feel like something I, I have to do, or does it feel like something I, I get to do? It's a source of encouragement to my soul. Chapter 5, I ask whether you pray because diligence in prayer is the way to true holiness. Right? Holiness is, is hard. It's, it's a hard-fought battle. It's incredibly difficult to grow in holiness, but it's not complex. It's not hard to understand. It's just hard to do. Right? The, the reality is uh, growing in holiness starts with and is marked by prayer. Chapter 7, I ask whether you pray because neglect of prayer is one of the greatest causes of backsliding. If you want to fall away from the faith, if you want to fall away from Jesus, you can start by, by, by stopping, by just kind of put a moratorium on prayer in your life. The quickest way to fall away from God's, from God's grace. And lastly, I ask whether you pray because prayer is one of the best means of happiness and contentment. Right? Not money, not sex, not success. Right? The best means that a Christian has at his disposal to enjoying real happiness and real joy is through communing with God. It's through experiencing the nearness and the intimacy of, of God through prayer. Do you pray, right? Do you pray privately, right? Do you, do you sit down, read a passage of scripture, and then meditate on it and pray over it? Do you pray with your family? Do you make it a habit to collectively uh, acknowledge your weakness together and trust in the sovereignty and sufficiency of God together? Do you pray with your church? Do you, do you, you know, ask a, a fellow church member how you can be praying for them and then, and then actually pray for them or, or pray with them? Do you pray, Luke 18, 1 through 8, Jesus is calling us to see God rightly and to respond to God appropriately. Right? He's, he's, he's calling us to see God rightly as our, our loving Father who listens when we pray and who delights to answer our prayers. And he's calling us to respond accordingly by humbling ourselves, trusting in him, coming before him in prayer, faithfully and persistently in view of who he is and what he has done for us pray together. Father in heaven, we long to be a people who pray. 
Lord, we long to be um, a people with a, a theology that is, that is big and, and bold, a people who see you as our sovereign God, our God who loves uh, his children and delights to answer their prayers. And we long to be a people who respond to who you are, Lord, by praying, by praying faithfully and by praying persistently. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would help us to be humble. We ask that you would help us to be prayerful. We ask that you would help us to trust in you uh, instead of ourselves. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.